It's Monday, January 4th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Mr. Jason Moser. Good to see you, sir. Good to see you. Happy to kick off 2021. Yes, indeed. We're going to talk restaurants. We've got some entertainment business news to get to. We're going to start with the deal of the day. Teledyne Technologies is buying FLIR Systems in a cash and stock deal that's in the neighborhood of $8 billion, which is a pretty nice neighborhood. (laughs) FLIR Systems is in the business of thermal imaging cameras and sensors. Shares up about 20% this morning. Shares of Teledyne down more than 7%. Anytime I see that disparity, Jason, the first place my brain goes is, People on Wall Street think that Teledyne, whatever they think of FLIR systems, they think Teledyne overpaid. <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's certainly possible. I mean, it's very much in line with that that typical move that we see with with the acquirer stock um, getting hit because the burden of proof ultimately is on them to prove that this is a sensible acquisition. Um, I, I do see the interest though here, and and as a little. Uh, context. Uh, FLIR Systems is a company I've been following for a while now, and it, it, it's actually a recommendation in our Augmented Reality and Beyond service. I've had it in there for, for a while. And, and um, it, understanding that business, I definitely understand the interest coming from Teledyne here. And so, it, you know, first and foremost, let's look at what FLIR does. You mentioned uh, thermal imaging. I mean, that ultimately is what they are into, thermal infrared imaging. They consider themselves uh, the world's sixth sense, if that gives you any idea. But uh, they they make their money by selling cameras and sensors and the related technology uh, with that main focus on thermal and, and infrared imaging and and you know, these are these are cameras that can can do all sorts of things from detecting elevated body temperatures to chemical biological radiological nuclear explosive threat detectors so they have an industrial side of the business which generates about 60% of, of the company's total revenue and then a defense side of the business as well which generates about 40% and it's similar business in is is to Teledyne, but is there's not a lot of overlap, right? I think Teledyne is really interested in that thermal focus from FLIR, um, and, and given the the neat things that thermal is doing, uh, I, I, I can understand the forward looking the forward looking nature of this acquisition, getting that thermal technology. So this is, as I said, the deal's worth about eight billion dollars. Teledyne is on its own a thirteen billion dollar company. Yeah. Do you think? Does that strike you as odd? It always strikes me as odd when when we see a deal and the acquiring company is not dramatically bigger than the company they're buying. Yeah, I mean it. It is. It is a bit of a not quite a merger of equals, but but close to that. And and again, I think the main the main idea here is being able to bring all of this IP in house and and leveraging that uh, to to the fullest extent. And and I think you know one of the interesting things about FLIR is that it, it's a it's a vertically integrated supply chain. So they that means they keep their supply and their manufacturing basically in house, or they control a lot of that. And, and FLIR and Teledyne together, they're both companies that really uh, value and protect their IP, right? their intellectual property in this sensor market. Uh, But because there's no overlap there, 
uh, it, you know, it's not something where they're going to be talking about whittling away, you know, trimming the fat and whittling away unnecessary expenses and, and you know, letting part of part of Fleer's business go just because there isn't really that much overlap. I mean, sure, there will be some some consolidating uh, costs that come with all this and uh, whatnot. But when when you look, you go back to the thermal imaging nature, the stuff that that Fleer is doing. One of the, one of the things I really like about this business I've liked for a while is they do a good job of part partnering up with other tech companies out there in in uh, doing really neat new things. And so, another company I've talked about on this show before, in a stock I own also, is uh, Ansys, is, is a company that actually partners with FLIR. FLIR and Ansys are partnering together in order to deliver Detection solutions for assisted and assisted driver and autonomous vehicles. So FLIR ultimately, like you see this this debate as to whether uh, lidar or thermal imaging is is the the more appropriate uh, platform of, or sensor for for autonomous vehicles and lidar, which is kind of like laser detected uh, distance sensors. LiDAR has some shortcomings, particularly when it comes to uh, adverse weather conditions. And so, FLIR, because that thermal imaging is seen seen as a better option as opposed to LiDAR for autonomous vehicles, FLIR and, and ANSYS are doing a lot of work in that autonomous uh, vehicle market. And, and while that's very nascent, and I think we're still a ways away, I just think it goes to show the type of technology that you're dealing with here, and and, and they're also uh, part of those those Microsoft Hololenses and all of the different applications that you could you can uh, undertake with those things. So it's just it's a lot of neat technology. They're very focused on protecting that IP. I understand why Teledyne would like to bring that in house, um, and, and it sounds like they're going to pay they're going to pay I think a fair price. I mean when I when I recommended the stock, it was it was trading around 32 times earnings, and this this implies about 36 times trailing earnings. Uh, so they're not paying through the nose. I bet you Fleer could have probably held out and gotten a little bit more out of it, but it's it's, it's I think a fair price for for a good business. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that Roku is in advanced talks to buy Quibi's entire catalog of content. For those unfamiliar, Quibi is the short-form video streaming service that went from startup to bankrupt in less than two years, <laughs> breathtaking speed. Uh, suffice to say, Quibi's lineup of original programming is lightly used. Uh, but all kidding aside, Jason, hopefully we're going to find out what price Roku pays yeah. if this deal goes through. Depending on the price they pay, this could be a really interesting and potentially fruitful move by Roku. It absolutely could be, and for all of the fun that we have poked and will continue to poke at, at Quibi, um, I, you're right. Depending on the price that they pay, uh, this could be okay. I mean, it really is all about exclusive. I think this qualifies ex as exclusive content. I think it probably qualifies, like I said on Twitter earlier today, it probably qualifies as never-before-seen footage uh, in most <laughs> cases, because I just don't know that many people actually saw that Quibi content. And so, if if Roku is is paying a, a good price for it, and I would imagine that, that Quibi is probably a little bit more of a desperate seller than Roku, a desperate buyer, uh, then hey, listen, it all boils down to just generating more ad, more money from the ads uh, than you pay for the content. And I bet you that they'll be able to pull that off. I mean, when you look at Roku today, I mean, they already count 
basically two-thirds of the top 200 national advertisers as clients. And that just continues to grow. I mean, if you look at the actual reach this platform has now, uh, when they reported uh, Q3 of 2020 earnings, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 46 million active accounts, that was up from uh, just over 32 million a year ago. And to put that in context, I mean, Amazon Fire, I think, which is the other really big competitor in this in this space, Amazon Fire and Roku are really kind of uh, jockeying for, for market uh, position here. Amazon Fire reported recently somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 million monthly active accounts, and so I think that you've you've got Roku that is looking to branch out and, and provide a little bit more exclusive content. This is probably a very easy bet to make for them because they're not going to have to pay a lot to do it, but it is going to be something that can help them build out that Roku channel app, which is really a point of focus for management here in the coming years, that Roku channel app. So, when the news broke, I think it was last month, that Jeffrey Katzenberg was looking to sell Quibi's content and he was approaching Netflix and Disney. And at the time, you and I were like, oh, God, no, please. Like, <laughs> as Disney shareholders, we're like, please, unless, unless you get it for a nickel, yeah. there's no need to, to buy this content. I think in the case of Roku, because of the amount of content the, uh, and the different categories, Quibi's content falls into, uh, if they end up buying this, uh, one of the benefits could be seeing what sticks. Because if they've got, let's just say, a hundred shows across, you know, action, comedy, drama, you know, all these different categories, then they can see, they, they can just let their customers decide, well, what's the stuff that we want to see more of before Roku just you know, may have just been blindly throwing a dart against the wall, trying to figure out, well, if we go into original programming, what category should we go in? If they get this, this enables them to make a much smarter investment down the line. Yeah, I mean, no question about it. I think you look at a deal like this, and I would imagine management at Roku is looking at this as, as an investment that could pay out in, in one of or two of two ways. Um, you ultimately are able to bring in that, that content. Sell some good ad inventory from it, and I mean that—that that is, you know, the gist of, of Roku's revenue. It's—it's it's a very ad-driven uh, business model. Um, and, and so, again, if, if the, the money that you bring in from selling that ad inventory outweighs the money that you're paying to actually get that content, well, ultimately, the economics make sense. It's hard for me to imagine they couldn't pull that off, because I just think they're going to buy this stuff for a song. Um, and then, you add to that the learnings that they take away from it, just like you said. I mean, they're going to get a very good idea here, particularly when it comes to short-form content, because that's what this really is about, right? I mean, that's what Quibi was all about, was bringing in a lot of quote unquote star power to, to bring more short form content to, to the forefront, particularly in mobile. And I think that's where this could really play out well for Roku uh, as well in, in regard to the Roku channel, right? I mean, that's that app that you can download to your phone, and, and it, there's your mobile presence right there. So if they really push this on the Roku channel, that's becoming a bigger driver of, of uh, revenue for the business. And that's why it's a big point of focus for 2021. So I, I, we probably won't ultimately find out what the price is here. A lot of times, companies like to keep those cards close to their vest. But uh, I, I just I cannot believe that Roku would be just clamoring to to pay up for this kind of stuff when when really Quibi is the more desperate of the two <laughs> by far. 
For anyone looking to start the new year by cutting grains from their diet, Chipotle has some good news. This morning, Chipotle announced the nationwide launch of cilantro lime cauliflower rice. So for an additional $2, you can get that burrito bowl with not actual rice, but cauliflower rice. This is uh, a a limited time offering. I, I have to believe though, Jason, if this works, in part because of the additional $2 price tag, that this then becomes a permanent addition to the menu. I would think so. I, I guess I just don't know how many folks are are looking for cauliflower rice today. I mean, I Chris, first, it was pasta. and I mean, it, everybody's got a problem with pasta, and now they've got a problem with rice. I mean, it, 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 where does it end? You know, I mean, this is just, this is, this is, Getting to be insanity for me, Chris. I don't understand. What's the what's the problem with rice? You know, I, I don't have a problem with rice, but some people do. <laughs> and you know, in all seriousness, I mean, look, when it comes to restaurants, for investors, the name of the game is what did you do in terms of same store sales, and what did you do in terms of the average ticket price. Yeah. And if you're growing both of those, then I'm happy as a shareholder. I mean, $2 is not nothing. And if all of a sudden the average ticket price goes up, uh, this, I mean, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be doing this, but if enough people do, uh, then that's good for Chipotle shareholders. Hopefully, my sarcasm was obvious in my previous statement because I I have heard of cauliflower rice before. I totally get it. And I understand that's what some people like to eat. So don't don't email us. I was just joking around. Um, it, it is I think very much in line with what Chipotle has done so well over these past several years. Um, I mean, if you just wow, look, this is not even close to the same menu from back in the day, is it? I mean, this is not the same Chipotle that that we knew even five years ago. I mean, they were they were obviously going through a, a big uh, crisis there with with the health scare, and they they were able to come through that. Obviously, it took some new management to do that. But what they've done is it, something we always harped on with Chipotle was this fairly simple menu and being able to take a, a fairly limited palette of ingredients and just doing a lot of good stuff with it. And now, if you look at what they've done with their menu, they've they've really kind of kept that same relatively the same palette of ingredients. They add a little bit of stuff here and there. But but now, I mean, you look at something like all, the, all of these new dishes, I mean, these lifestyle bowls, and, and, and I mean, there's so many different ways you can go about it now, uh, eating at Chipotle, that, I mean, to me, this is right in line with what they've been doing. And it's right in line with really what they stand for. And so, it's like when they introduced sofritas to the menu, right? For folks who were looking for a meatless option. And that was a limited time only. They tried it. People liked it. It went away. It came back. And so, I think they do a very good job of trying new things, bringing them out, seeing how customers like them. And, and if, if customers like them, they always have the option of trying to introduce it as a more uh, like a more constant uh, offering on the menu, or they can always just offer it as something that is uh, a limited time. And that limited time perhaps creates a little bit more interest. I think at this time of year, probably some folks are making some resolutions to eat better, and maybe this is this is a move that that uh, uh, you know homes in on that a little bit. But um, I mean, I, I never ever dismiss any menu innovations that this company tries, because kind of going back to what we were talking about with Roku, I feel like 
even when they mess it up, <coughs> queso, they figure things out, they learn from it, and then they introduce something that can be better. And so this this will be, I'm, you know, whether it succeeds or not, they're they're going to glean data from this rollout that is going to make their menu even even better, I think, going forward. And uh, as as a as a longtime shareholder, I, I continue to applaud all of these innovations that they can keep rolling out. By the way, shortly before we started recording, McDonald's came out and announced, circle the date, February 24th <laughs> is the rollout of the much anticipated crispy chicken sandwich. And we're, we're just over a year into Chris Kemchinski's tenure as CEO of McDonald's. And you and I have talked about this before. I mean, this is item number one for the for that uh, group of independent franchisees uh, when they sent that letter to McDonald's saying, "This is what we want." Well, it's it's maybe taken more time than they had hoped for, but it's coming in late February. <laughs> hey, listen. I mean, the chicken. There's 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 a lot of of power in a a well executed chicken sandwich. I mean, we have seen. Um, Obviously, Chick-fil-A has built a wonderful business around it. Popeye's, uh, I mean, that has just continued to be a, a phenomenal driver for them. And um, it, it really is all a matter of execution. And it, it seems like it'd be kind of easy just to lob a chicken sandwich up there. But hey, remember, remember Goldman Sachs dropping some big coin there on Zaxby's, trying to grow that Zaxby's present. We talked about that a couple of weeks back on this show. Uh, they, this this is not a a slam dunk. You got a lot of companies out there that do chicken really well. So McDonald's is going to have to bring its A game. And I think in the case of both Chipotle and McDonald's, uh, you know the the subsequent conference call uh, when. Uh, the results of the cauliflower rice and the crispy chicken sandwich, when those get baked into the earnings results, I mean, that's that's absolutely going to be the first question out of the gate for both those companies, isn't it? I mean, it's the questions I would be asking, Chris. Right. But, you know, listen, I mean, I, I don't pretend to uh, represent all of the analysts out there, but I think you and I are on the same wavelength here. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.